Good morning, listeners. Today we have a special guest. Last year, when I was teaching complex problem solving, which is how I met Tim, everyone had to write a major essay. And everyone had to write on a complex problem of their choosing. And Morris Prendergast, who is our guest today, wrote an amazing essay that stopped me dead within two paragraphs. I think I gave him the highest mark I've given an undergrad for probably about four years because the essay went so deep into something really important and really uncomfortable. What we're going to be talking about today is does evil exist and what is evil? Just a little bit of a warning, this will probably be a little bit more in your face than our normal episodes and Morris is going to read a chunk of it so if you hear a different voice reading for a while it's because I want you the audience to get the same experience I got when my computer started reading the essay to me. In 2017, Jay Austin and Lauren Gonigan, a young couple from the United States, quit their jobs and went on a cycling trip around the world. Beginning in July 2017, they flew from the US to South Africa and began riding through the continent to Tanzania. From there, they flew to Morocco and continued through Europe to Istanbul, where they then flew to Kazakhstan and continued south to Tajikistan. During their trip, the couple kept a blog about their travels. And while in Morocco, Jay Austin made this post. You watch the news and you read the papers and you're led to believe that the world is a big, scary place. People, the narrative goes, are not to be trusted. People are bad. People are evil. People are axe murderers and monsters and worse. I don't buy it. Evil is a make-believe concept we've invented to deal with the complexities of fellow humans, holding values and beliefs and perspectives different than our own. It's easier to dismiss an opinion as abhorrent than strive to understand it. Badness exists, sure, but even that's quite rare. And by and large, humans are kind. Self-interested sometimes, myopic sometimes, but kind. Generous and wonderful and kind. No greater revelation has come from our journey than this. Austin made this post on April 5th, 2018, but approximately three months later, on July 29th, 2018, Austin and Gonigan were cycling with a group of five others when the group were run off the road by a car that passed the moments before. Afterwards, the occupants left the car and stabbed the couple along with two others to death. Two days later, a video was released online by ISIS depicting the five alleged perpetrators claiming responsibility for the killings and swearing allegiance to the Islamic State's self-appointed caliph, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. Upon hearing about this event, I couldn't help but see the irony of someone claiming there is no such thing as evil and that the concept is merely the result of ignorant people choosing to view someone else's beliefs and values as abhorrent rather than understand them. Only for this person to be murdered months later in the name of an organisation and leader which engages in genocide and slavery. Actions widely considered evil. Following Austin's logic, the five ISIS fighters who murdered him, his partner and two others were not doing something objectively immoral, but were instead acting out their own personal beliefs and values, which are just as valid as any other belief system. While Austin himself would likely have put this event in the category of the rare phenomenon of badness, one could just as easily make the claim that the couple should have understood that they were in a place where they were not welcome, rather than expecting that everyone would embrace their presence. Wow. Thank you for that, Morris, and thank you for joining us today. Thank you. 
That's thank right. you for having me. Anytime. And obviously, thank you, David. Always great to be here and great to have another guest. Absolutely. So I guess the point of this essay, the point of us coming together today was to talk about whether evil exists and what it's composed of, what, what evil, how you would probably describe evil is what you kind of aim to do in your essay. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about what made you choose that topic? Yes. So a few months uh, before I did the essay, I, was, I saw on the news about this couple, Jay Austin and Lauren Gonigan, who were murdered by ISIS fighters in uh, Tajikistan by Islamic State fighters. I'm politically conservative. So the conservative media source I was following saying, oh, here, look at these silly liberals and getting themselves killed. But I was a little bit more interested less in that and more in like why they would think that, that, you know, because the historical record is filled with terrible acts that humans commit and yet this notion that it's not real, everyone's nice to you, everyone will always be nice to you, only for them to be... Ended so awfully. Yes, yeah. Yeah. Mm. What I really loved about Morris's essay was the process by which he got beginning to ponder about this event which in isolation is abhorrent but raises lots of questions and how beautifully he went right one question at a time I'm going to unpack this and then think about my answer and then frame my next question very carefully. Morris can you unpack your process a bit for us? Yes so first my gut reaction was to look at all the big horrible events from history so in my essay I mention. Uh, the Holocaust, the Holodomor, and the Great Leap Forward, so the, mm. the great genocides of the 20th century, as well as I also mentioned other events like Rwanda. But I decided to look specifically at mass shooters because I felt that if I look at a broader event that involved masses of people, I could get a bit stuck in how might an ideology affect yeah. someone. It was the power of ideology or a political culture rather than individuals succumbing to this thing that yeah. might be called evil yeah. yes yes so uh so i, was, I remember uh, before i talked about it david we discussed it in class and you brought up how in auschwitz there was examples of guards just viciously gleefully torturing yeah. people like for example getting them to carry massive bags of salt from one end of the camp to the yep, other just or, to do it yeah, yeah piling up bricks only to kick it over at the end yeah by contrast, there are other guards who simply couldn't cope with what was happening and committed suicide. Yeah. So I decided to look at mass shooters because it's it's a single act. So they, you know, look at how the individual might get to that point where they can carry that out mm. without being driven to it by, you know, sort of the mob mentality. And the some of them do have mind. an ideology, but more often than not, we're left with more mystery mm -hmm. than we have clear answer. So when we have people like Anders Breivik in Norway or the guy who we don't name now in New Zealand because if you know the New Zealand Prime Minister is not going to name him, I'd say we run with that protocol. Mm -hmm. We let the event stand as a horrible event and don't give the guy any celebrity. But there what we can see is they wrote their own manifestos. These are people who created their own justifications, Yes, which is in some ways more interesting because you're less a sheep and more some sort of you know nasty jackal hyena so it's easier creature. it's easier to isolate a single person as opposed to when you have a situation like the nazis it's, yeah. it's hard that 
argument has been going on for years since yeah, Gold Hagen's following orders. Yeah, yeah. Gold Hagen's mm. willing executioners, which has been argued against for like now half a century. So yeah, you need some way of being yeah. able to go. Okay, I, I want to get us. You know, there's always going to be the potential for an ideology in an, mm. in an individual, but you don't want people sacrificing themselves to the broader cause or saying, you know, that they were told to do it by the broader cause. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, that's just being sheeple. Mm. They've yeah. just followed the path of bleating and doing horrible things, saying, well, someone else justified it for me. These are people who either justified it to themselves or somehow even transcended the need for a socially acceptable justification. Mm. While you're in your process, I, I, what I want to know is, did you find what you were expecting to find? Well, from, from the beginning, I did roll on the assumption that evil is a real thing. Yeah, because yeah. I did have a Catholic upbringing, so the belief in evil is quite a strong, mm. um, is quite a strong uh, influence. Mm. But I was sort of I was interested in just how different people. So the the three mass shooters I looked at were the two Columbine killers, Eric Harrison, Dylan Klebold, and a the Texas University mass shooter uh, Charles Whitman, mm-hmm. and just how they they had very differing motivations, all three of them, but the mm. end result was the same. Mm-hmm. So main difference being Harris and Klebold got to the decision on their own mm-hmm. and the, their perspective motivations were different. We can talk about that later if you like. Whitman, by contrast, he seemed to have a genuine mental health problem. He had a tumour pressed up against yeah. his amygdala, mm. which caused him bouts of rage and one day his bout of rage was just so terribly exploded. Yeah. And actually wrote in the note he left for the police to find make sure I'm autopsied, something's wrong with my brain. Mm. So he understood and he had tried to seek treatment. And in that era, they're like, no, no, you, you seem fine. Mm. And they didn't have the imaging technology to look and go, whoa, that can't be good. So the third shooter, you had three examples, you said? So, yeah, so, the, so the, those were the three shooters. Yeah. So oh, I see. Eric Harrison, Dylan Klebold. Yeah. Um, and maybe maybe it's worth going into now how different the two are. They end up doing the shooting together, but they're very different yes, individuals. So, mm, I'll start off with Dylan Klebold. Dylan Klebold was really a depressed young man. He really had a bad outlook on life. His his writings really are tirades of self loathing. Mm. Everything's you know why does no one like me? You know initially it's a bit of self pity, but then he goes into well. You know, I'm terrible, I'm disgusting. How would anyone want to have anything to do with me? And there's exa- there's instances, for example, when he sort of writes poetry about his unrequited love that again goes into how could she like a freak like me? Mm. But throughout his writings, you'll have little tidbits, little stabs of rage that come in. And he'll say, oh, you know, I just like to kill them all and get my revenge. And then he thinks, no, nah, I could never do that. I'm too pathetic. Isn't that all an interesting that- point to stop though? I want to kill them all, but I'm too pathetic to do it. Mm. Not it's against something. Mm. And to me, that's a really critical thing in your essay. It wasn't against humanity. It wasn't against morality. He just goes, I'm too pathetic. Mm. Now, is is that a way to build up to being able to do it? Is it just an indication of how much of a mess his brain is? That's one of those points where I go, whoa, the significance where it doesn't even twig that this is a moral decision mm. or a decision against humans. Instead, it's a self-referential thing. So how critical is this self-referentiality to what we might want to call evil? 
that once you have your own standard and you have no value, how can anyone else have any value? So by devaluing everyone and everything, violence becomes, or at least in that case, easier. Mm. Yes, and by contrast, Eric Harris was just all rage. Yeah. His, his diaries are just tirades of, you know, you could stand on a table and scream it at people and it would work. He just unleashes rage on everyone, you know, people at school, jocks, nerds, people who like Star Wars, people who listen to music he doesn't like. And there's a lot of instances where, you know, I'm the righteous one, you know, I'm the alpha, yeah. I'm the apex predator. So he does, you know, what in Melvin Seaman's terms is self-estrangement. He defines a more perfect version of himself and the world, makes himself the arbiter of bringing it about, which means he can destroy anything that doesn't meet that high standard. So the fascinating thing is one has devalued everything, including self. One has overvalued self and a utopian ideal, and both end up at a point of being able to make peace with excessive violence. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty shocking because the the FBI were of the opinion that if Klebold never met Harris, he would either have gotten treatment and gone on to live a normal life or worst case scenario, killed himself. Yeah, it would have been a, a one human down scenario. Mm. Do you think he yeah, do you think he could have even killed himself if prior to meeting uh, Harris, uh he was struggling to muster the courage to kill other people, let alone muster the courage to kill himself. Yeah, possibly. I, I didn't. That's an interesting thought. I didn't think on that because you know I, I think that is not that I, I want to prescribe it with a positive term, but it takes a lot of courage, I suppose, to mm. take you know get over the fear of death. I suppose when you know in, in committing suicide, it's kind yeah. of beside the point. No, because it's it's part of this devaluing process. Mm. If you can devalue everyone and yourself, true. That is so unnatural a state for a social species like us mm. to go i don't matter and you don't matter yeah mm. is it easier to shrivel or is this a way to hide the fact that there is a rage there and the fact that he got sucked into not harris's rage but he got sucked into the vortex behind harris's rage mm. and went mm. down the path with him mm. there's so many things here that say beyond a certain point you're not putting the pieces together in a way that is readily comprehensible to the rest of us mm. and that this is in a sense the the point of you know morris's essay at a certain point you start behaving in a way that the rest of us can't make sense of anymore because we haven't crossed the rubicon whatever this rubicon is and most of us don't want to <laughs> Yeah. So is that the best definition then? Is it at the point where you can't explain it that it becomes evil? No, no, I think your definition is way better than that. <laughs> <laughs> so once we you would you've kind of provided a recount of their two situations. Yep. What was your next next step, your next conclusion? Yep. So my next step was obviously with the FBI looking at their mental states. Uh Harris was diagnosed psychopathic. Mm. So I wanted to look at okay, if so uh, before that, I sort of deemed, well, okay, of the three of them, we would probably say that Harris would be the worst, followed by Klebold, followed by Whitman. Mm. Yeah, Harris was, he was heading somewhere mm. almost willfully. Yeah. Klebold got dragged along, you know, in a vortex. And the Texas shooter, he had a brain tumor that they just couldn't spot 
and he knew something was wrong. He, in a sense, is the only one where the explanation at some level helps. Yes, yeah. Mm, mm. I mean, it was very much a murder-suicide, but for Harris yeah. it was a mass murder with suicide tacked on the end. Yeah. Mm. And for Klebold it was suicide with mass murder tacked on the front. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I looked at the definition of evil in the Oxford Dictionary and they define it as profound immorality and wickedness, especially when regarded as a supernatural force. So I looked at that word wickedness refers to wrongdoing done consciously. Mm -hmm. very specifically so i looked at that if how consciousness and knowing what you're doing is wrong but doing it anyway mm -hmm. plays into evil so using that i looked at harrison klebold where there was a consciousness they knew what they were doing whereas whitman by contrast yeah like you said mm -hmm. david just exploded seemingly almost out yeah, of touch out with of reality yeah. yeah is is there cause a part of the argument it's not as if they were shooting people for like the fun of it there mm. was still no. some process behind it so they and this is this consciousness thing in the definition of wicked that's so important they were conscious that what they were doing was to fulfill an end they had decided they valued even though they seemed aware that doing such a thing was wrong mm. Yeah, so uh, for Harris, it was very much a revenge-filled thing. So I'll, I'll just read a quote from his his diary. I will sooner die than betray my own thoughts, but before I leave this worthless place, I will kill whoever I deem unfit for anything at all, especially life. If you piss me off in the past, you will die if I see you because you might be able to piss off others and have it eventually all blow over, but not me. I don't forget people who wronged me. So I perceive that as very much just revenge on mm. everyone who's ever wronged him in any way at all. They're not they're not actually big judgments of okay, so humankind is flawed. It's it's literally just these people have made wrong decisions against mm -hmm. me. Yeah. So well, again, it's not that even though he's now got his idea of the utopian world, it's not you don't fit my utopia. It's you annoyed me. Mm -hmm. It's a very deliberate, selfish, conscious choice. It mm -hmm. seems to me, which again makes you know Harris one scary dude. Mm -hmm. mm. And clearly, with nothing, nothing to lose. I mean, you don't enter these kinds of events thinking you're going to get out of them. Well, you, by yeah. the sound of it, you wouldn't want to get out. Mm. So, I guess this is the thing: like we we have things like Columbine happening before nine eleven. We see people self estranging, going, "I've got an idea of what world I want. This isn't it, and you don't fit in my world." And reducing it to, "You've pissed me off." Mm. The the writings on the wall by the late nineties that internalized, personalized thoughts, ideologies are going to be so dangerous in the future because this person has justified why they can do it and justified why it's okay to exit after. And that is such big, powerful things. Now, Morris, you want to read out your definition you came to it then because I think this is actually uh, a good yes. time to contextualize it against being wicked because it's such a good endpoint you got to to clarify this huge thing. Yes, so at the end of my essay, I defined evil as evil is the conscious and willing harming of those who are undeserving with the intent of ending or causing suffering in their lives. Yeah, which is when you've analysed those three killers, a wonderful way to distinguish why Harris is the most concerning of the three because he fits your definition perfectly. And the other two for different reasons, you can go, 
you can be evil or you can be affected by evil or you can do something that looks evil but not entirely be responsible for what you did. And there's such a difference between something looking evil from our perspective or questioning whether the intent was evil. Yeah, we know Sartre said you can never know someone's intent. You can only ever experience their actions. But in this case, where we've got people who wrote the note to the cops going, when I'm dead, check my brain, or we have the diaries from the Columbine shooters, we can look at their intent. And in their intent is this most powerful thing, that evil is a question of intent. Yeah? We can call something evil in the news because it makes it easy for us to label it, pigeonhole it, to go, oh, that's evil, that's fairly rare, it's over there, oh, that's yuck, mm. to feel disgust and move away. But now start actually thinking about audience, the implication that there is a proportion of evil that starts with a deliberate intent to do that evil, to be evil, to bring an outcome that fits with that intent and to be calm and focused on that outcome. No wonder we don't know what to do with it, don't want to have to deal with it and would rather just quickly label it and move on. Yeah. Because I, mm. I did, just on your point of when you talked about calmness, I, I was watching a documentary on Columbine recently and uh, have you heard of the Trenchcoat Mafia? No, tell us about they it. They were a a group of friends in Columbine who they unfortunately got slapped with potentially being involved in it because they were kind of the weirdos who would wear trench coats to school and play D and D. I mean, they were just nerds. But they'd got a uniform. They'd call, they'd, they'd formed a collective. Yes, yeah. like any good group should do to feel better. Yeah, and yeah. they were unlucky enough that Klebold and Harris wore trench coats to hide the weapons and mags. Yeah. yeah. Um. So they got slapped with a bit of attention. But one thing I did key on specifically was one of the members of the group was in the library when Klebold and Harris came in, and he he knew them. Yeah. And at one point he looked up at Klebold and he said, oh, hey, Dylan. And the guy looked down at him. He's like, oh, hey, man, what are you doing? Oh, just killing people. And just the sheer. Um, oh. He'd separated to such a degree. Yeah, just how Did calmly. he end up shooting this kid or did this kid survive? Not that I know of. It didn't say in the documentary. Okay. Not that I know of. See, to spin this on its head to an incredible thing that came out of events like Columbine is this is the era where conventional police officers set up a cordon and contain the situation. So as shootings like Columbine and lots of the shootings since until about three years ago go on, police turn up, set up a cordon, call in you know, more capable, more highly trained people to come and deal with the situation and sit and listen to the horror story, listen mm. to it unfold. The number of police officers from Columbine and then later shootings, places like Sandy Hook, mm. where they sat outside, heard it happening, but their orders are to contain it, who the psychological, psychiatric damage of being a witness who had some potential to intervene but you know had been trained not to is just huge. Mm. So now we have the other twist where now we train police officers for direct action. If it's an active shooter or an active perpetrator, the police are meant to go to weapon up and drop them. Mm. So you've gone from one extreme of you can't intervene to now you must intervene. I mean, we're talking about a moral situation here. Is mm. the people who are standing idly by, are they in some way morally 
accountable for well, when they suffer moral injury most definitely mm. but you can suffer moral injury from not being allowed to intervene mm. but you can also suffer moral injury from intervening wondering if there might have been another way to respond true but once you've had the direct action training and it's your first on the scene you can hear a shooter drop them mm. so the irony is we've recognized the necessity of intervening when someone is living out Morris's definition of evil. But have we really reflected on what having to respond to evil does to you? you know, at the end, mm. you're stopping a shooting initially. That's awesome. People live. Mm. But what are the, mm. kill, you know, the consequences of potentially having to shoot a 16-year-old teenager to end something like this? Mm. Would you question yourself, you know, can I morally justify what I did. Now you'd have to hope that police officers and other people in those roles can. But you know, would they ever wonder that they've crossed the line? You know, they've consciously killed somebody. Mm. Now for the right social reasons. They did it to end harm to other people, but they did deliberate harm to a person to save others. So the interesting thing with your definition is it's really good for understanding the perpetrator, but in some ways the person who stops someone from doing evil also is going to inevitably question, you know, did they cross a line too? Yes, yeah. I'd hope they can come back from that edge, but they still ended somebody. I think this is such a good argument against moral relativism. Yeah, moral relativism, it just means that people, well, again, my classic argument in Chutes and you've both heard it, mm -hmm. you know, moral relativism is... Female genital mutilation is okay because it's culturally normal. Mm. No, mm. just no. And I know from memory when we started talking about your essay, that was kind of one of your ways in, wasn't it? Was thinking mm. about stuff like that. Yes. Well, yeah. this is not morally relative. And also the explanations you'd found in scripture, you know, through your, you know, your childhood, through your upbringing, mm. becoming a man were, they're not bad answers. But they accept those answers and run with them, not confirm for yourself why to accept them. And you wanted the confirm for myself why evil exists, what it is, how it works. Yes, yeah. I did. I remember a couple of years ago, it was my first class I did with you, David. It was security after the Cold War. Yeah. Uh, it was the week we covered Rwanda. Oh, and I set that terrifying exercise. Yes. Do you want to explain the terrifying exercise? Yes. So the question you posed to us is, okay, you're a tribe living in a village who has just carried out or is about to carry out a genocide against the next tri tribe over now justify it yeah and what i found fascinating about that was particularly in my group other groups were more willing to do it but the other people in my group just refused to answer the question yes there was could we build a wall could we chase them away yep. dig a moat come up with all these Solutions yeah, of they why. just didn't want to go there. And that's part of why I did the exercise. You know, audience, I'll add a, a few more details. Basically, what I wanted to prove is that any cultural norm can be instrumentalized to get an outcome. And that can be instrumentalized in a good way or a terrible way. So my setup was, you know, in the village, there are two groups and they're a little bit different. And when there's enough resources, everything's good. But now things are bad. There's enough water for half the group. There's enough food for half the group. And from everything you hear across the country, the whole country's in the same state. Now, justify 
knowing that they're different to you, how and why you're going to kill them all. And yeah, you did it in four chutes in a day and every chute just went into stunned silence. And two of the fascinating things is, you know, those chutes had some Iraqi girls in it, one of whom had been in Baghdad while the surge was on, while the communities in Baghdad had been genociding each other. And we had an African student who started telling the story of how at age nine his dad taught him to use the AK-47. So if his dad died, he could defend his mum and sisters. And it was to get people to understand most of us have this limitation in a safe classroom. But if it's limited food, limited water, and you can get in your head that the other group are thinking of doing the same thing to you, if you can turn it round that you're not attacking, you're just preemptively defending yourself and that they are culturally different. So my point was I wanted to get people to see how far they could go and how uncomfortable they could get going there mm. to see that most people will stop unless it's the whole society priming them to do violence. Yeah. There were groups like, you know, you described Morris, your group that just went in the main, uh-uh. Mm. You, know, you did the thought exercise because you thought, well, there's got to be a reason why David set this exercise. He wants us to think about something, so let's give this a go. But the groups who just couldn't do it you know, were, were both horrified, but when they heard the other groups getting the point, this is about the power of social pressure. This is about the power of justifying you know, defensive, preemptive defense. This is about seeing why after the event the people who did it look horrified. They don't look happy they participated. They look shocked they were involved. Yeah? So humans end up going down dark paths without meaning to. So when you years later come and do this essay about um, some people get themselves here on their own with no justification like the food and water are running out, that other group might be going to attack us. None of your three shooters felt in any real danger. What they wanted was a sense of power. You know, I've talked about it before in, in shoots that you guys have both been in, that you know, part of the reason we see violence in sort of the, the post, well, really the post-Columbine world, is people wanting power over other people. And in a religious context, sometimes it's, deemed as redemption, you're bringing yourself back, you're protecting your group, which is, again, an instrumentalization of religion, a misuse of religion and faith. Sometimes it's social, you know, redemption. I'm doing this for the sake of the environment. I'm doing this for the sake of this downtrodden community. And even if we don't accept those justifications, at least we can understand the thought process. But when you do like Harris and say, you all suck, you've all offended me, and that is now my justification to kill a lot of you, wow, there's no justification, there's no explanation. There just is willful harm to innocence, yeah, conscious and willful. And that's why I like your definition so much. Would a better way to run that exercise be to pit the groups against one another? Because when each group is noticing that the other group is participating in the the thought experiment, mm. then they're kind of forced to, in, in, in exactly the same kind of Cold War way. Okay, to, I had to take 
the calculation that what I was asking was already uncomfortable enough. Yeah, okay. But pitting, pitting people against each other yes, in the room. that's not something I was prepared. <laughs> Look, when I first started tutoring a very long time ago, my boss at the time said no psychiatric experiments on the students. <laughs> I would view pitting two groups against each other as being too much a psychiatric experiment yeah, yeah. that I am not qualified to play. Yes. But a thought experiment where the other group of people are only in your head, Yeah, that is an important way to understand the power of social pressure, instrumentalization of pre-existing beliefs mm. and culture, mm. preemption, you know, a defensive posture. All those things I wanted groups to think about. I didn't want them to start actually getting in to the potential aggression of something like the Stanford Prison Experiment. Well, mm. yeah. <laughs> yeah. That ended bad. We're not going there. Again, you know, again, you guys can attest to the fact sometimes being in my class is not comfortable. Mm. <laughs> but it's never meant to be harmful. It's meant to be uncomfortable enough to get you more used to being a little bit uncomfortable and knowing use my brain, use my brain. Rationally using my brain is the best way out of uncomfort, discomfort, and the best way to go, what is the world trying to do to me? How do I resist going somewhere dark? You know, which is a lot of the point of how I used to teach security subjects when I was teaching them. You need to understand that the world is scary so that you can resist the impulse to make it scarier. You know, I'm hoping, and do you remember anymore, Morris? What did the tute take away from that tute? Did they talk about it after or did people scrub it out of their heads? Uh, well, the group I was with uh, skedaddled pretty quickly. I tried to talk about it, but they were just out of there. Well, that, that was just the group I was in because yeah. I was friends with them. I can't speak for other people in the class. Although there were a couple of people who... Or even uh, there was a fella, I forget his name, he made some joke that made you laugh. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I wish I could remember because uh, it, was, it, it was probably fairly dark and fairly funny at the time. <laughs> oh, it was something, it's it's like the finesse is in the execution or something Oh, like boom, boom, beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Some, something something along that line. But I did want to actually touch on your what your point about sort of it's us or them. And I did touch on with a neurologist called um, Simon Baron Cohen mm. put forward an idea that evil is actually a malfunctioning empathy yes. circuit in the yes. brain and the, um, a lack of empathy makes people do this, which would follow on from um, Harris being a psychopath. Yeah. Because being a psychopath, one of the uh, ways to treat it is does someone have any empathy for others? Yeah. But, of course, you can also be potentially born that way mm. or it can be learned behaviour. Yeah, so, I was going to say, I think empathy is a learned behaviour. So you can either have... Well, again, we'll go back to the, the gene for males for violence, your MAOA. Mm. If you've got a mm. malformed version of MAOA and you have a really nice childhood, you'll be fine. If you've got a damaged version of MAOA and you have a terrible childhood, you'll spend most of your adult life in jail for violent crime. It's that simple. And I would want to hypothesize that the empathy circuit in the main is big and complicated and Baron Cohen is trying to make the world nicer than it is by saying mm. it's malformed, I think it can be underdeveloped or you've actually been shown through what you've experienced that will make you weak. So you develop a circuit that says don't be weak that is more powerful and replaces the empathy circuit. Same outcome, but what your brain has done is invested in a different path, which is far more uncomfortable mm. because any of us could have a brain which through experience and choice has invested in don't be weak, take them out first rather than investing mm. in empathy. But I would rather deal with that one where we don't have free will, but at some point 
maybe we can choose to invest in the other circuit. Mm. We can choose, well, you know, um, the David Eagleman argument, which I find fascinating and frightening because of its implications. The only question is, is our behavior modifiable? If our behavior is modifiable, then we are worth investing in. But if your behavior is not modifiable, you should simply be warehoused. If you are, you know, if you are seen by Morris's definition to be evil and unmodifiable, Eagleman would just warehouse you. But was that? But is that evil from the get-go? Like, no, just that you've got there yeah. and mm. you are no longer modifiable. Mm. Like mm. someone like Harris was Harris modifiable? We'll never know. But if I had to put money down, I'm going to say at least ninety percent chance. No, mm. he wasn't modifiable. You know, Klebold, on the other hand, maybe could never be a happy, well-adjusted human, but probably wouldn't have been a killer. Mm. So I'm going to put 60% chance of modifying his behavior. In a Texas shooter, if we'd been able to get the brain tumor out of him, 99% chance the guy would be fine and enjoy life in society. Well, you've, you've, you've got to be willing. You actually have to be willing to participate in those changes. Yeah. Well, um, modifiable means not only can you do it, but you're willing to engage in the process. Mm, that's yeah. right. Mm. So is is that some part of the definition in insofar as do evil people want to be evil or rather do they not want to participate in in changes that would make them not evil or not do evil things maybe I don't want to label the people well Morris's definition it's it's a conscious behavior mm. they've mm. consciously chosen it mm. so they have at some level participated in establishing their world view so that they can justify violence. Now, whether they're modifiable or not at the start is one question, but whether once they've established that worldview, by the very nature of taking the action they take, they've indicated where their conscious thought process took them. It's interesting that it has a background. You brought up with the Oxford Dictionary in the supernatural because mm. we, we tend to um, use the word in lots of fiction as well yeah that you know the, the enemy or the uh antagonist in a fictional story can often be described as e evil mm. Uh, mm. you know i'm thinking of let's say a well-known one like star wars you know the the turn that like and i'm hoping this comes across to our listeners right the turn from anakin to darth vader yes. is a conscious yeah. movement and it's something that the that you know that antagonist thought was righteous mm. Mm. the force is powerful mm. but you choose to succumb to the force. Mm. And yeah, that's the interesting thing. You choose, but in the end you succumb. Mm. So you choose to the point where you lose control. Mm. Mm. Well, why if you chose to go there, wouldn't you continue to choose to be there? Why couldn't you therefore choose to come back? Mm. Yeah. yeah. Audience, Star Wars makes it easier, doesn't it? <laughs> We've yeah. now got a slightly less scary universe to be talking about this in. <laughs> well, actually, if you wanted to use the Anakin Skywalker example, that does touch on another point I made in the essay. It was... Mm -hmm how empathy could be such a powerful driver mm -hmm. for evil. So I use the example of Islamic terrorists, but to use the Anakin Skywalker example, he basically plunges the whole galaxy into a horrible tyranny to save his wife, the person he loves the most. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, this... What um, would you sacrifice for what? Yeah. Mm. So again, this kind of gets to our point of what's it like for a police officer to either have to stand off because they have to coordinate or now with direct action to have to go in and take out a shooter. So is it evil or is it just a malplaced moral hierarchy? Uh, which bit, Tim? <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> uh, I suppose 
the the, the, pre- the preferencing of an individual over everyone. Yes. Yeah, but then we get into a, a, another question: is if evil is to consciously do harm, then good is to consciously assist people to flourish. Mm. But in both cases, we're talking very generally, aren't we? We're trying mm. to keep it general so that your behaviour is judged overall and in the round. So to my mind, if you sacrifice you know, the universe for the love of your life, you still are evil. What I like about the essay is that it gives definite situations where the word should be used. Or could. Well, I think that it, I think that it makes a very good argument to say that it should be used in these situations. Yes. And the essay actually makes a point of saying that philosophers and theologians... Theologians. Theologians, yeah. It's I-A-N, anyway. Theologians are going to argue about this until the end of time. Whereas what we need is a practical tool to use to cope in a world where young men kill people. Mm. Now, young women do occasionally too, but it's majority young men. So I'm just going with the, the standardized imagery. Yeah, I was going to bring that up before. Is that, is that, do you think that's a like a biological predisposition? Is it the MA, Is it the warrior gene? Is it MAOA that is making people? Well, again, that'd be fascinating to know, you know, what, Harris's MOA, MAOA was. Mm. Was it damaged and has your childhood been crap? Mm. So, yeah, okay, there's going to be some people where biologically, well, it's, it's the nature by nurture thing. Mm. If you've got genes that are susceptible and then experience triggers them, that's going to have a big impact on your life. But there's there's got to be more because part of why philosophers and theologians mm. think about this and why the three of us are sitting here <laughs> is because none of us walk around going, kill. Kill, 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 kill for the sake of my utopia. Kill. And I hope we never will. Well, why don't we? Yeah. It's really good that we don't. I'm really glad that we don't. And audience, please don't take that little brief bit out of context or I sound really, really sick or really, really evil. Oh, man, all over the news tomorrow, uh, university lecturer <laughs> Just go, has, kill, dis- has kill. disturbing thoughts. Yeah. yeah, my normal one is how many donuts can I eat? That's as disturbing as I like to get. <laughs> but, yeah, so why, why does it fascinate? Because it happens and because it happens, it means it could happen somewhere near us and we don't want it to. Is that a good enough reason? Mm. That's my reason. Mm. I want to understand it and I give you guys terrible thought experiments in shoots about killing the other half of the village because I want you to not succumb to things. I want you to be ready to resist. That if you can think about it in class, if we ever have to confront a seductive populist fascist ideology, I want you all to be ready to go, I know what that is and I know how it's trying to instrumentalise our culture and I'm going to quietly call bullshit. I'm not going to call bullshit from you know a podium and, and get disappeared by this horrible thing, but I'm not going to succumb. I don't know, I think my underlying reason for trying to understand evil is I, I have no doubt it's out there and maybe I'll never encounter it directly but like every other thing, I want to be prepared to at least stop myself going down the rabbit hole even if nothing more than that. Mm. I don't know, Morris, having the background of the religious upbringing, having thought about it before and then mm-hmm. thought about it again, do you have any need to think about this question since you wrote the essay or do you now have a good enough answer for what 
you know, does evil exist and what is it to be kind of satisfied that you've prepared yourself for the world the best you can? Like, what do you feel you got out of the essay and the definition? I know that's a huge question. So. Yeah, no, that's okay. Well, yes, I mean, my religious upbringing has always emphasized that evil is a real thing. And it's um in, in Catholicism, which is my denomination specifically, there's this idea of original sin, hmm. which has always been used as a bit of a theological club to beat people with. But the basic premise is that we all have this little nibbling evil in us okay. that you need to be wary of so you don't indulge it. So it's almost to go back to Star Wars, very mm. Jedi. Mm. That if you have a capacity with the Force, the Force is always going to be there to tempt you. So that, mm. that's kind of the you know Star Wars reflecting Catholicism, mm. right? Which is interesting. So we can't escape that. I wonder if that's normal in most religions, that there is this idea that just by being alive, it's a bit like if you're driving a car on the road, you're already partially to blame for any accident because you were on the road. Absolutely. So just by being here, you have to acknowledge there's a kernel of something that could grow. Yes, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I think I'm pretty satisfied with the look that I had at these people. Yeah. And just how, like, you need to be aware you can descend to those depths, particularly with Harris, but there is always this thing of I'm not. I'm not the initiator. Yeah. I'm. Yeah. What I'm doing is the, the logical yeah. end. What I'm doing is righteous in a sense. Mm. Yeah, so that thing, of, mm. to deal with evil, it almost seems you need to give up with ends being your driver and go, well, ends happen, but what were my means? Mm. Yeah, so it's a very stoic thing in a lot of ways where the stoics are all about how you live, not necessarily the outcomes you can get. And it's one of the ironies that Stoicism and Christianity, who were so at odds with each other in the late Roman Empire, hold a lot of the same beliefs. It's more important how you live than what you achieve during your life. You know, the comfort, the moral peace comes from knowing you behaved in an appropriate way according to your rules and how it affected other people. You know, so evil, in a sense, is a rejection of the most fundamental social means, and that is... How am I going to behave? How am I going to treat people? So no wonder it, you know, it's always there in the corner and is sewn into religions and science fiction as being, be careful, there's this thing in the corner and it can grow if you let it. <laughs> Boy, do we do big things sometimes. <laughs> Why is there an alternative to the word within that definition? Wickedness seems like something that people can grasp and is perhaps less contentious. Yeah, that's interesting because even you saying the word, mm. I know this might sound silly, but to me, wickedness is like actively doing something. Evil is what you are. Mm. So to me, the two words seem evil is what you are, wickedness is what you do. Mm. Is that, I don't know if that's... It's more, that, yeah, more conceptual than physical, I suppose, yeah. yeah. Or is it just the, the cultural priming we have being in a Judeo-Christian society mm. and being the generations after things like the Holocaust. And in my case, being old enough to remember Rwanda on the TV mm. and Srebrenica on the TV, you know, on the news. And the word evil was what was used there. So maybe it's the direct correlations and connotations that go with evil through exposure to the world. Yeah, my guess is they could be loaded any way you like, depending on how your culture uses them, and then how the media uh, reflects back those thoughts. I mean, that's more of a linguistic problem than. Yeah, I think so. Mm. Now, yeah, if we had a philosopher, he would get different answers. 
<laughs> but also we'd probably spend a lot more time in these words than we are now. Mm. For me, at least, like Morris, I don't want to have to study evil forever to come to a deep conclusion. I want to study evil long enough to try and inoculate myself from not being sucked in well, yeah. and then stop and move on to making the world a better place. It has. It, it actually does have a purpose in that sense and the, the argument that surrounds evil from a philosophic point of view. So, David, you may not know or you may know uh, Nietzsche attacked evil, yeah. disliked the, the use of it yeah. and then the, the whole argument kind of revolves around what the motivations are for using the word, mm. which is not not a not not a pragmatic or useful well, for use Nietzsche, of time. For, for Nietzsche, he yeah. said, "You know, I'm going to get rid of this word because you idiots use it on me." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he had a good, simple reason. Mm. So again, something can be a social weapon, and what we're not talking about here mm. is using the word evil to shut someone down who's different. Mm. Now, what's their behaviour? Mm. And what's their intent? Not are they different to us? You know, being different to us could never be a justification for calling them evil. It would have to be through assessing their intent and their behavior that we can use the word. So again, if there's a, a, a linguistic caution here, it's don't chuck this word around without an understanding of intent or an observation of behavior. Mm. Otherwise you're devaluing a powerful word, a powerful word that should make people stop and think. Have we just about hit our thinking limits, gentlemen? I, I'm, I just want to bring up one other thing because I think we've talked a lot about situations where the evildoers have reasons mm. or there is some causality as, as to why they committed evil acts. Mm. I can think of a specific situation and I'm just going to have to try and research it a little bit. There's a horror film. Something like it's called. Mm -hmm. I can't remember the same. And it's just doing harm to people who go camping on the lake for the sake of harm. Mm -hmm. I hadn't thought of it until now. But it, it really is Morris's definition played out in a movie. These two couples camp on the lake and one of the locals just decides he's going to kill them. Mm. And you get no context for his behavior. You don't know whether it's something he always does, whether it's new and different. It's just what he's going to do. Mm -hmm. And you get no explanation. And it... It, it's one of the most uncomfortable movies I've ever sat through. The Tate murders, which were committed by the Manson family. Oh, mm. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So a situation where at least the victims have no concept of why they are being murdered. And that's actually, that is a common theme. Yes. Here, these shootings, the victims have no idea why yep. what's happening to them is happening. Yep. But I'm not sure it's clear or at least they've never found any motives to why the murderers would do the same thing as opposed... Well, I suppose considering it's the Manson family, they've got a psychological reason for wanting to continually commit murder. Mm. But why these specific people? Is the innocence factor part of the evil definition? I think it's really important. Mm. Well, again, Morris, it's your definition. What am I doing button in? <laughs> yeah. Um, the Tate murders. Was that... Roman Polanski's wife? Yes. Yes. Yes, because I, I did that house, not the people inside, but the house belonged to someone who had probably wronged is the wrong word. Okay. Yeah, right. Who Charles Manson perceived as wronging him. So okay. yeah, much like Harris, mm, you've, he, you've annoyed me, you've offended me. Yeah. Forget the story. Manson befriended a band, one, a member of a band. One of the members owned that home. 
And when this man was away, the band member said, told Manson that he can bring all his friends over. And this guy rocked up and suddenly there's this weird hippie cult in his home. Mm. And he told them to get out and Manson was just forever. Um, there's going to be payback. Yeah. Yeah. And then he just obviously using the, um, I believe he used LSD. Mm. To get into his followers' heads, and he just said, "Just go and kill whoever's there." Yeah, and paint something witchy on the walls. He said, yeah. as gruesome as he can. Yep. Well, okay, so I think yeah, I can't. I certainly can't think of any situation, and I would love for the listeners if they can think of anything or know anything about a situation where someone has committed evil for no reason at all, because I think that requires a even more specific definition. Well, a reason. Are we always going to find a reason so we can cope with seeing it happen in the world? But that, isn't that the point of the word is so that yeah. we can cope mm. with something that yeah. is otherwise un- inexplicable yeah. or incomprehensible? Well, just on the reason, could an unjustified reason still count? Because, mm. for example, I was uh, in the lead up to this podcast, I was looking at the manifesto of a master named Elliot Rogers. Mm-hmm. He was the, on the internet, he's called the Supreme Gentleman, the sort of brought the incel culture to light. Right. Okay. Effectively, he decided that he, he he had a lot of issues regarding self-image and he was certain that um, if he was wealthy and looked nice and girls would fall in love with him, but they didn't want to touch him with a 20-foot pole. Mm. And he went just one day just went out and decided he was going to go to a sorority. Sorority. Oh, sorority yeah, and, yeah. and kill all the most beautiful girls he could find because they'd rejected him. And throughout his manifesto, there's a lot of ridiculous justifications. Like at one point, he went to a party and tried to push girls at the party off a ledge on the house. Yeah. And then people got angry at him and the girls' male friends came over and pushed him off the ledge. And afterwards, he he was all... I think he broke his ankle, I think. Mm. And he's like, you know... Why doesn't anyone feel sorry for me? I've been beaten up and hurt. And so that ability, no matter what happens, to keep reframing it as a victim. Yeah, like he. Which again we see yeah. in Harris and in Klebold, both of them just keep reframing. I'm a victim. And to some extent, uh, the third. Sorry, I forgot his name. Whitman. Charles Whitman. Whitman yeah. yeah. To some extent, Whitman is a victim of at least a biological. Yeah, but he mm. didn't frame himself as being a victim. He said, "Someone's wrong." Not I'm a victim. So he True. wasn't looking for a way to... He he was upset he couldn't stop something he thought was going to happen. Mm. He wasn't justifying it. So mm. he, that's where it was so, you know, such a good contrast in the essay. Having him as like, well, hey, what he did could be called evil. But once you start looking into him, you realize this guy was asking for help and just no one, no one knew where to look. Mm. Right. Well, it's been a, a hefty hour. I think perhaps we should we should leave there. Are there any other kind of conclusions we want to leave it on, gentlemen? Anything else we need to say? I'm very happy we did mm. the podcast because it's one of the things I think every thoughtful person thinks about occasionally. Mm. And it's nice to kind of put our thoughts together on it, largely so we don't need to think about it again regularly. <laughs> but I like the idea that you brought up, David, in, that it pragmatically it is a tool that we can use to learn from. Yeah, in that very historical sense of, let's look at what to avoid. Yeah, don't let yourself get sucked in to some sort of justification or instrumentalization of social, cultural, or religious norms mm. that lead to evil. We've morphed completely out of shape. Mm. Yeah, go. Mm-mm. 
Maybe you don't make a lot of noise because you don't want to be in the path of, well, evil. But, you know, see it coming, run, move, get out the way, <laughs> warn people if you can. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you very much, Morris, and thank you for writing the essay, first of all. Yeah, well, th- thank you for having me. Fantastic, we got to do it. <laughs> all right, cheers, gentlemen. Have a good day. Thank you. Thank you. Hello, listeners. If you're enjoying our podcast, please subscribe and like our Facebook page. Search for Blind Insights with David Olney. Also, don't forget that we have merchandise. Thank you to the OzCast Network. Peace out. Peace out.